Good evening, everyone. My boys are just approaching teenage years, which means when we're at events that have canned soda or lacroix or whatever it might be, they always want to have one. And I always answer the same way. You can't open one unless you're going to finish it. And I'm afraid tonight I'm not going to keep my own advice. We're going to open a lot more cans than we have time to finish. Um, in fact, traditionally, tonight's lecture is two hours and 35 minutes. But I promise you will leave at nine. I've made some edits. Uh, and, uh, and at the very least, here's, here's kind of the big points that I want you to get. I'm going to lay them out right in front. So no matter when you need to leave, here's where they are. Okay? When we talk about gender... There's a couple of things we need to do uh, to start in the right place. One, we have to recognize that gender and sexuality go hand in hand and that we really can't talk about them separately. Okay? Two, we have to understand gender in the context of the image of God. Male and female, he created them in God's image. And three, we have to understand it because, as we've seen in sexuality, ultimately that image is relational. We have to understand gender in relationship. So in other words, tonight, we are just going to take the three pieces of sexuality that we've already talked about, embodied, uh, relational or unitive, and social or procreative, and we're just going to view them through the eyes of gender. In other words, we're going to talk about male and female, father and mother, uh, and husband and wife. Okay. And I would suggest when we start at that end, instead of asking questions like what is masculine and what is feminine, side note, the Bible doesn't answer those questions, uh, then we are better set to understand gender. And as we do, it will inform everything we've seen so far. Okay. Um, now, because I have cut a couple of things from this lecture, you'll see me jumping past quotes and slides um, I will make these notes available for you to review, um, but, but let's just go ahead and pray and get started. Father, I'm so encouraged by just that one lyric that we encounter tonight, Lord, that you do not grow weary. Uh, and I just thank you, Lord, that, um, that even, we, even though we grow weary, Lord, even though we're irritated or bothered, even though we tap out, even though we know our limits, Lord, you are limitless, and so is your love, and so is your goodness. And so we rely on that tonight as we look at your design for gender, and we ask that you teach us in Jesus' name at all. Very quick review. Very quick review. Genesis one twenty six. God says, let us make humankind in our image, male and female in the image of God. Okay. Um, and so this is unique in the creation. Unlike the other facets of creation, this God refers to himself. This God creates in his image that, remember, we are somehow like God and called to represent him. God created male and female to help us understand who he is. Okay. But God doesn't have sexual genitalia. Okay. Now that might seem, hopefully that seems to you a relatively obvious point, but remember in the context of the ancient Near East, the time and place the Bible was written, that was actually pretty unique. Okay. The way that most of the creation narratives explain where everything came from involve 
male and female gods and sexual acts that lead to the reality of creation itself. And so when the Bible extensively distances itself from that, it stands apart. Okay. Um, Okay, in the same way here, uh, God created gender, um, but he is not a sexual being. He doesn't have genitalia, okay? But the Bible does use gender to describe God, and it does so in a consistent and particular way. Like I said, God is, uh, engages with, in his self-revelation in scripture, both metaphors of gender as well as pronouns of gender. Okay. And he does them always in the same way. Masculine imagery is used metaphorically. God is a father. Feminine imagery is always used in the form of a simile. God is like a mother. God is motherly. Okay. And that's consistent. Old Testament, New Testament. Isaiah, Genesis, Jeremiah, Mark, wherever we go, consistently God is a father or is a husband but he can also behave like a mother. Okay. Um, now, when we look at these things, we see a couple of things here. Okay. So this is what I'm saying. God is a father. God is like a mother. God metaphorically fatherly. God like a simile female. Okay. Notice that these relationships, for example, father and mother, are relational imagery. That's the idea here. If there is a father, that it implies a child. Or a mother, it implies a child. If it is a husband, it apply, implies a wife. Okay. Now, in some of these relationships, like father and mother... God can be fatherly, and we'll see this tonight. He can be motherly. And the Bible has no qualms with giving motherly traits to God. However, it never gives childlike traits to God. Okay? And so if the relationship is parent and child, God is always the parent and never the child. In the same way, in the context of marriage metaphors, God is always, always the husband and never the wife. What I'm suggesting to you is not only do these relationships tell us about God, but they tell us about the relationship God has with or desires to have with us. And that requires these two interconnected parts for us to understand it. What is a father without a child? Right? The relational imagery requires both sides. Okay? And so God may be the father or the mother, or more accurately, as we see, motherly, but he's never the child. God is always the husband, but never the wife. And we, as human beings, play the other part. To God, we are all children. To God, we are all the bride. This is why C.S. Lewis uh, says, what is above and beyond all things is so masculine that we are all feminine in relation to it. Okay? In other words, I know we haven't covered much ground here, but just to reiterate, Gender is designed not just to show us who God is, that, that there are masculine and feminine aspects of God's character, but it's designed in its relationships to show who God is in relationship with us. Okay? Um, so, again, relationships of sex and gender teach us who God is. When we understand that, we can draw a couple of inferences that should shape how we understand and talk about gender. First, if we're going to understand gender, we must understand it relationally. 
Okay. To understand male, we need female. To understand father, we need mother. To understand husband, we need wife, and so on. It is those relationships that are core to the Bible. The Bible doesn't give a list of traits that are masculine or feminine. In fact, those particular words do not have Greek or Hebrew equivalents in the Bible. We can't find a list where it says, men have these traits, Women have these traits. In fact, the Bible also doesn't give a list of jobs that are appropriate or inappropriate for each gender. Now, remember, the Bible describes all sorts of people doing particular jobs, and those descriptions may only fall to men or women, but it doesn't prescribe jobs to men or to women. Instead, it focuses primarily on proper roles in relationships. And even where it does prescribe particular roles to particular genders, it's the relationship that shapes that and not attributes, traits, abilities, etc. Gender in the Bible is a relational concept. Second, the second implication I want to draw from this is, uh, first, if we understand it, we understand it relationally. Second, if we're going to understand gender, we need to focus on the archetypes. I think we're all acquainted with the problem of stereotype in gender. Okay? In fact, how the stereotypical method works in a so-called biblical approach is it takes an example of what manhood or womanhood looks like in our culture, and then it thumbs through the pages of Scripture to find matching examples, and it always ends up ignoring or not noticing the ones that don't fit that paradigm. Okay? The problem with stereotype is it starts with us and assumes total reality across all times and cultures or even biblically uh, truth. It is always selective. And it also inherently says to be a man, you must blank. To be feminine, you must blank. But the truth is male and female are innate and inherent. If we're going to understand male and female, we need to say because you're a man, you are, or we've already missed the boat. Okay. Uh, And then obviously, because stereotypes come from any particular culture, it's limited in its application. It may make sense here, but not there. I'll give you a perfect example. When somebody says the the woman's place is in the home, they're forgetting the fact that before the Industrial Revolution, so was the man's. Right? Because the man's shop where he did his blacksmithery or whatever was right in the backyard. Okay? We have removed... Men from the home. We have removed work from the home. We have removed the center interactions of society from the home. And the home has become a private place instead of the epicenter of public. And so when we reduce that down to a woman's place is the home, that doesn't even make sense biblically. But we're starting with a stereotype, okay? So we need the archetypes. We need to look for the patterns, for the models, for the beginnings, instead of their expression in any particular time or culture, And so what I would suggest is when we put those things together, we see gender being relational, we're looking for archetypes. The only missing piece here is that we should also connect it with what we've seen in sexuality. And so again, that leads us to three primary archetypes to think about. There is male and female, like there is embodied sexuality. There is husband and wife, like we saw in unitive sexuality. And there is father and mother, like we saw in social sexuality. Okay. 
And so when we start from those places, and that's what we're going to look at tonight, is those three types of relationships. We also have a foundation to build on in other places. Okay? Let, me, let me draw an image in your mind really quick. Um, if you are the average Jewish boy, what is your trajectory in life, presumably? Okay? That you will become a man and a husband and finally and fully a father. In fact, last week we talked during procreation about how procreation was so significant you hadn't fully arrived until fatherhood. Okay? And so the normative and natural progression for life in the ancient world of, of Israel was boy to man, man to husband, husband to father. Similarly, we could follow the same route with woman, a girl to woman, woman to wife, and wife to mother. Okay, in other words, if we want to talk about gender in maturity, fatherly and motherly doesn't just tell us about people who have children, it tells us about fully orbed and grown expressions of masculinity and femininity. Okay, we'll return to that. All right, so if we're to understand gender, one last thing, and this one doesn't have to do with what we've seen in the Bible so far, this has to do with a mistake we make culturally. If we're to understand gender, we must respond to the differences between men and women in design and in role. Okay? We have to somehow understand and explain the differences. Okay? When we look at Adam and Eve, we see many commonalities. Both of them have the dignity of being divine image bearers. Both of them are given the call to rule and to reign on God's behalf. Both of them have a part to play in procreation. Both are held responsible for their choices and experience the consequences of those choices. That's all in common. All of that falls under the broad category of what it means to be human. However, there are clear differences they are equal in all these ways, and, but they are different. Now, I feel the need to pause here because sometimes when I hear equal but different, or when I say it myself, I instantly think of separate but equal. And so I think it's appropriate to pause and look back on segregation and go, aren't we really doing the same thing? Okay. Doesn't there need to be no difference for there to be true justice and equality? That was the problem with separate but equal, right? It was great on paper, but in theory, it meant that some people didn't receive equal, equal treatment. It was the nature of the significance. The problem is ignoring differences has a tendency to perpetuate injustice. Okay? Um, a uh, speaker by the name of Mollenkot, uh argues um, that... Uh, that that's what a real, true, just society would look like, one where there was no distinction between genders. And here are the two illustrations she chooses to double down on. If we really understood the equal dignity and value of both genders, then restrooms would be gender-free and prisons would be gender-integrated. Okay? Now, uh, Megan DeFranza rightly responds to this and points out the obvious problem with that. Mollenkot should certainly be applauded for her genuine concern for equality, but her proposal overlooks the fact that justice often requires treating people differently rather than the same. Justice requires special attention to the vulnerable, and global statistics continue to show that women and children make up the largest percentage of the most vulnerable. 
When women age 15 through 44 are more likely to be maimed or die from male violence than from cancer, malaria, traffic accidents, and war combined. Eliminating gender-segregated bathrooms and prisons hardly sounds like the most compassionate response. And honestly, I have a hard time not saying, well, duh. Right? When we take the violence perpetuated in prisons and then we introduce women into men's prisons, we would anticipate abuse stemming from that physical difference. It would be an unjust situation to treat them as if there was no difference at all. Children also make a perfect illustration of this. Okay? It would seem working towards equal safety for all might require paying more attention to difference, for example, family, unisex, handicapped bathrooms, rather than the eluding of difference in the name of equality. Okay? And so when I say equal but different, that can be possible without falling into the trap of, of injustice. In fact, it's a requirement. Okay? As Megan DeFrenza recognizes, women are, vo- are vulnerable in society because of the abuse and the mistreatment of men. The CDC reported last year that 55% of female homicides are committed by intimate partners. Let that sink in. The majority of women who are killed are killed by their romantic partner, who obviously is most of the time a man. Okay. Um, many people recognize this, uh, and the Bible does as well. The Bible roots this problem not merely in the physical difference of strength between man and woman, but actually in the curse. Here in Genesis 3.16, when God is speaking to Eve, he says to the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your cha- pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. Okay? And so the Bible sees this domination that happens in the hands of men against women as being part of the curse. Now, this is not a command for men. Nor is it a justification of the subjection of women. We will return to this later. But it is a consequence of the fall. The relationships between men and women are frayed in such a way that because of the fall, men will take advantage of and oppress women. Okay. So we still have to ask the question then, How do we think about the differences? How do we think about male and female? And there's been three primary new responses to this that are unacceptable for us as Christians seeking to be biblical. They just won't line up with what we see in the Bible. The first is philosophical androgyny. In the ways that really matter, there are no differences whatsoever. So biology isn't essential. It isn't necessary, and beyond that, there are no differences, and so the only differences that do exist don't actually matter. Male and female are just social constructs, okay? Um, The problem is with this, first off, we need both male and female to image God. We'll come back to that. Uh, Second, this has a tendency to perpetuate injustice by avoiding the differences and saying they're not there. We do not put proper restraints in place to do what justice requires. But also, it has a surprising tendency not to remove masculinity and femininity, but just to erase femininity. 
Okay? Androgyny almost always means a masculinization of all people, not an equalizing. Even G.K. Chesterton, a hundred years ago, uh, recognized this. He said that this type of feminism that he was encountering, which was androgynous in nature, he said it's like that very old-fashioned feminism that hated to be feminine. I'm told that in Russia, men and women dress roughly alike, right? Under, under Marxism and socialism, they tried to really eradicate gender distinctions, and so they dressed alike. But look at what Chesterton points out. But mark you, that does not mean that the men wear flowers in their hair or trail about in those noble pontifical robes with which tradition clothed every woman like a queen. It means that women dress like men, not that men dress like women. And we don't have time to talk about this, but interestingly enough, after the whole USSR experiment, it was Gorbachev who came forward and went, we made a really big misstep in trying to ignore gender and they really, as a country, tried to reverse that. Um, but, uh, but this approach has a tendency to lead just in that one direction. We don't lose male and female. We don't find some sort of robotic middle ground. We just scrub away femininity. Okay? Another response is to explicitly elevate the masculine to the eradication of the feminine. Now, we don't have time to look at this book, but it is a fascinating read. Uh, Vandana Shiva uh, is a nuclear physicist turned activist. Okay? She's uh, an Indian and a Hindu, and her primary work is against Monsanto in India, trying to get back the ancient practices of farming in India. This book, Staying Alive, uh, she suggests that there is always a connection in any society between women, the environment, and the economy. That the three always go hand in hand, and it is incredible. Incredibly interesting. We don't have time for what she's saying here, but she talks about this idea of elevating the masculine to the eradication of the feminine, and here's what that means. It means trying to free women from the particularly feminine things because masculine is better. Okay? And so uh, what this looks like, uh, I'll, I'll read just a little tidbit from this quote here. He says, uh, the emancipation of the second sex lies in modeling itself on the first. Women's freedom consists in freedom from biology, from, quote, bondage to life's mysterious processes. It consists in women battling against the elements and becoming masculine. Okay. In other words, it sees the realm of men as being a territory women have kept out of, and they overtake it and leave their femininity behind. It says, uh, for example, power. Uh, and this career orientation and these types of things are better. And it's willing, as she mentions here, to fight against biology, childbirth, in order to achieve the masculine. And then, of course, there's only one other response left, which is to explicitly elevate the feminine and eradicate the masculine, which even though she points out in this doesn't work, she ends up doing nonetheless. And what she argues is that capitalism is effectively a masculine approach to the economy, that it's effectively a rape process of, of uh, thinking about our environment, um, and that what we need is to embrace a broader femininity. Um, now, if we're just talking culturally, actually, I think she makes some really good points. But if what we're left with is masculine bad, feminine good, we still have the same problem as biblical Christians of going, well, then why male and female? And how do they connect to the image of God? Okay. And so for us as Christians, because it's tied to understanding who God is in the image, those differences matter. 
and they have to be maintained, and they have to be maintained as equally important and valuable. Okay. Do we see differences in Adam and Eve? First, obviously, we see that they are biologically differentiated for the possibility of procreation. Okay. There is a biological difference, and that biological difference is not merely a difference. It's a difference that together works towards the purpose of having children. Okay. Uh, and so both are important and both are needed. Remember that this can't be reduced to merely biological. Right? We always have, as we talked about when we talked about embodied sexuality, this tendency to feel like the physical world doesn't matter. But as Christians, that's not an option. Okay? Because God created the world and said that it was good. Because God himself took on that creation, embodied, as a male, and walked the earth, okay, because he promises not just to save us from our bodies, but to save our bodies, because they really are us, uh, and resurrect these bodies. And so the physical realm for Christians is inherently theological. We have to watch out for this distinction that talks about the spiritual is the real, and the physical is somehow the unreal. No, the physical is designed by God to show who he is. Look, for example... Uh, here in the Psalms. Psalm 19 verse 1 says that the heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. In other words, creation is designed to show us God. Okay? It paints pictures, it shows things, or consider this one. One of the things I love about Paul's writings is what I call Pauline paradoxes. This is one of my favorites. Listen to this. He says, for God's invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived. The invisible, he says, is visible. How? In creation. Ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. How do we see the invisible attributes of God in the visible world he created? And that includes you as male and female. Okay. Also, since male and female in its distinction is tied to the image of God, and that includes male and female as biological realities... Right? It's not man and woman created in the image of God. It's biologically male and biologically female created in the image of God. We cannot surrender this. But here's the big one. Okay. The differences between Adam and Eve don't begin with the creation of Adam and Eve. They begin earlier. Male and female is part of a pattern that already exists in the creation narrative of Genesis 1. When we miss that, we miss something important. Okay, um, And so when we look uh, at Genesis in 1, um, it starts here with, the earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. Okay, This is where things start, and then God says, let there be light. And what do we have at the end of the first day? Light and darkness. The next day, God says, let the land come forth from the water, and it does so. And what do we have at the end of that day? Land, water. Okay. On the third day, there's the separation of the earth and the water. Okay. Sorry, sorry, the second day was water and air, and then the last one is earth and water. And so now we have land and sea. And so when we get to creation and we get male and female, it's also a relationship, a dichotomy, a division of two things. Okay. Um, not only that, but I want to draw your attention to what it says here about God's canvas when he begins. The earth was without form and void. Okay, in Hebrew, tohu wabohu. Okay, 
These two principles were the nature of the not existent, without form and void. But notice here that they mean two different things. Without form means shapeless, unmade. Void means empty, unfilled. Okay. Come back to that in just a second. Okay. What happens next is God spends the next three days fixing the first problem and then the following three days fixing the second problem. And so on the first days, he fixes without form. He makes light and dark. He makes sea and sky. He makes sea and earth. And then when we get to the fourth day, God goes back to day one and fills the sky that he made with the sun, moon, and stars. Okay. And then on day five, he takes the sea that he made and he fills it with sea life. And on day six, he takes the land that he made and he fills it with animal life, including male and female. So Genesis 1-2 says the earth was without form and void. And Genesis, uh, or the creation narrative says on day one, two, and three, God formed. And on days four, five, and six, he filled and what's amazing is when we get to Adam and Eve, that forming and filling continues, and you can see it in their names. Adam's name means earth, for out of the earth he was taken. Eve's name means life, because she was the mother of all living. Adam's name is a forming name. Eve's name is a filling name. Okay? We see it in their calling. Adam's calling is given before the woman exists at all, and this is what it says. The Lord God took the man, that's Adam. Let's see if the presentation catches up there. Uh, and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. Adam here is identified as a worker and a keeper. Those are former words, to form. It involves a building, okay? And then Eve is identified here as a helper, okay? The Lord God said, it's not good that man should be alone. I will make for him a helper suitable for him, okay? Now, this word for helper is a relational term. Do you see that? If you are a helper, it implies there's someone you are helping, okay? And so that comes back to the idea of filling. In fact, look at Claire Smith here. What we discover when we look at this Old Testament word, ezer, the word translated helper, it's not a term of value or worth. It's a type of relationship. Okay. I've mentioned earlier that this word is used consistently of God's self-identification. The Lord is my helper, the psalmist says. Okay. In fact, the word comes from military terminology. The helper is the cavalry that shows up when you're in desperate circumstances. It's not a dis designation of lesser value. It, you can't equate it to servant or maid. Okay. But it is a relational term. Okay. And so Adam's job, if you will, is work-related. Eve's job is person-related, forming and filling. Okay. We also see it in the curse. Now remember, the curse that comes about in Genesis chapter 3 doesn't make new things. It corrupts already existing things. Okay. So notice here what is cursed for the man. Boy, it's trying so hard. There we go. 
Okay, to Adam he said, because you've listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree which I commanded you, shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. The ground he's supposed to be working, right? The ground he's supposed to be forming. You shall not eat of it. Uh, Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. You shall eat the plants of the field. Uh, And it goes on, it says, by the sweat of the brow you will do this until you return to the dust. In other words, the ground he's now supposed to work will work him. Okay? It'll win in the end. Okay? And so forming is affected by the curse. His same work of working and keeping the garden is now toilsome. Okay? With the woman, her role is also affected. The woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he will rule over you. And notice again that not only does this include procreation, but two particular relationships. Eve's relationship with her children and Eve's relationship with her husband, both of which are now tainted. And so her ability to be the helper is twisted by the curse. Okay. And so these differences here are innately laid out in this way. Now, this isn't enough, and it's easy to be reductionistic here. Okay. I can't get away from the appropriateness of this trite saying, which is a man may make a house, but only a woman can make it a home. It kind of covers the bases that we're talking about here. Okay. But the idea here is not women are for making babies and men are for making buildings. That is an oversimplification. As we will see, even when men instruct children, their role is a formative one. And as we will see, whatever it is that women go out and do, because remember, they're co-rulers and they're co-creators and all these things. And again, the Bible makes no distinction in abilities. It doesn't say men smart, women dumb. It doesn't say men rational, women emotional. All of that stuff is not biblical. And a lot of it's not scientific either. Um, instead, Instead, men and women will do the same things, but they'll do them in different ways and for different reasons. Okay. And so what I'm pointing out is just a similarity, and I want to move forward now that we've seen these differences exist in male and female, and look at how they play out in mother and father. Why? A couple of reasons. First, for all of us growing up, what is your first example of masculinity and femininity? It's your parents. And ideally, your parents in relationship with one another, right? And it doesn't matter if we're talking about biology and it's, oh, my body is like dad's and not like mom's. Or if we're talking about what dad's role is and what mom's role is, that's generally the first thing you see in masculinity and femininity. But also, as I pointed out earlier, this is the expression of maturity in the Hebrew mindset. If we say, what is a fully mature male? We say father. What is a fully mature female? We say mother. Okay, and on top of that, just to, to add to it, I think it should be significant to us because biblically, these ideas of mother and father apply beyond the biological family. So again, here Paul is instructing a young pastor, Timothy, on how to relate to the church, and notice what he says. Don't rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father, younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters in all purity. Notice not only does Paul... Uh, describe these relationship in engendered terms, but he also does it in family terms. 
And finally, he does it in multi-generational family terms. We are not just brothers and sisters in Christ. We are also spiritual children and spiritual mothers and fathers. Okay? So even here, in the expression of gender that happens in the church, it happens in motherly and fatherly ways, biblically. Okay? Now, still, knowing all of this, it would be very easy to jump the gun and turn to stereotypical ways of go, okay, well, fathers do this and not that, and so this must be masculine. Mothers do this and not that, so this must be feminine. We have a strong advantage in the Bible, though, and it's this, that motherhood and fatherhood are both windows into who God is and the relationship he desires to have with his people. Remember, biblically, God is metaphorically a father. We're familiar with that. Heavenly Father, God the Father, etc. And he is also portrayed in many occasions as having motherly traits. So what I'm suggesting to you, what I'd like to do right now, is to reverse engineer how God describes himself to see what gender is supposed to be like as it's expressed in human relationships of mother and father. Okay? And the best part is, uh, because of the way the Bible is written, we can do this in rooted context. So I'm not just going to grab a verse here and a verse there and put them together. Instead, I'm going to go to one book at a time, first to Deuteronomy, uh, then to Isaiah, and then finally to Thessalonians. And in close quarters, I'm going to find God describing himself in both of these ways. And I want you to see that even though we're in Old and New Testament, even though we're spanning uh, thousands of years in history, we still find the same differences in what it means to be motherly and what it means to be fatherly. First here in Deuteronomy. Okay, this is Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 6. It says here, Do you thus repay the Lord, you foolish and senseless people? Is he not your father who created you, who made you and established you? What did God do as father here? Created, made, and established. Okay, Forming. In just a few verses later, God speaks of motherly traits. You were unmindful of the rock that bore you, and you forgot the God who gave you birth. Okay, These are motherly traits. God isn't identified as being motherly here, but when it talks about bearing and birthing, It's motherly terms, and again, it's focusing here on life-giving. Now, there's a relationship between those two things. We could say that giving birth to you and making you are synonymous. But one is considered fatherly in the way that it's said, and the other is considered motherly. And it's not just Deuteronomy. Uh, Here is in the book of Isaiah, and both of these are drawn from the second half of Isaiah. Okay, starting with the servant songs in 49. Um, but look at this one in uh, Isaiah 64, verse 8. And it talks about God as father. It says, but now, O Lord, you are our father. We are the clay and you are the potter. We are the work of your hand. Again, we see in close relationship, fatherly and making. But notice this making is not making a pot, is it? We are the pots. It is people that they're talking about, but these people are formed by the Father. Okay. A little bit earlier in Isaiah, 
Can a woman forget her nursing child that she should have no compassion on the son of her womb? Even these may forget, yet I will not forget you. Behold, I have engraved you on the palms of my hand. Your walls are continually before me. And so the image here is one of compassion and nourishment. That God, even if a mother could, you know, be nursing her child and look down and go, oh, who is this? Even if that was possible, God couldn't do it. But what is he tying into being motherly there? Compassionment and nourishment, okay? Um, And then one final one, and one that's actually really important. This one is in Thessalonians. Now, this one's different, because in this one, we're not going to look at God's words about himself. We're going to look look at Paul's words about himself. And we should notice here that Paul has no problem ascribing to himself being motherly. Okay? And so that should, that should make us watch out from trying to hermetically seal these things off as being something that only women do and men can't do. Or something only men can do and women can't do. It's not about that. It's about proclivity and design. It's about, if you will, orientation. But nonetheless, Paul uses the idea of mother and father in the same way as Moses in Deuteronomy, as Isaiah, and as we saw in Genesis. Okay, And so notice here what he says. He says, For you know how, like a father... Good night. Okay, we're, we're almost to the break, so we'll just ride this out. But for you know how, like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. And so what does Paul say is fatherly in his behavior with the church in Thessalonica? That he exhorted and encouraged and charged. Okay. Now, when he continues on... He talks about motherhood, and this is what he says. i got to find this. I tried to reset, and it didn't work. Right here. He also, this is in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 7, so just a few verses earlier. He says, but we were gentle among you like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. Okay. So fatherly, we exhorted and encouraged and charged. And like a mother, we took care of and nursed you. Okay. Forming and filling. Making and shaping and life-giving. There is a consistency in the way that motherhood and fatherhood is understood biblically. And it follows the pattern that we saw in Genesis. All right. Um, As promised, all we've really done with mother and father and male and female there is is really begin. I'm fully aware that we haven't answered the question, okay, great, that's that's what it looks like. What does it look like for me? We haven't really dealt with the so what, and and I understand that. Um, But... It is enough to give us the right place to start. Um, and the only thing we're missing now is, you know, what we've done so far uh, is, is looked at male-female relationships that we don't always spend a lot of time thinking about. Um, now I want to take this next hour and talk about the one that we spend a lot of time thinking and talking about because 
the Bible spends a lot of time thinking and talking about it, and that is the relationship between a husband and a wife. Okay? Now, again, that relationship, the husband and wife relationship, is unique. You shouldn't necessarily be wifely to all men or husbandly to all women. Um, but there is something significant in the uh, husband-wife relationship that personifies or pictures or helps us to see who God is and the relationship he desires to have with us. And so that design becomes significant. It's something that we have to put on the table. Okay. So I want to begin again. I want to go back to Genesis again, as we always do, and I want to start with the same momentum we had last time, okay? Both Adam and Eve, male and female, collectively reflect God's image, both collectively called to rule the world, both collectively blessed and called to fruitfulness and multiplication. When we look at a marriage relationship, we encounter the language of headship and submission, and the question becomes, is the equalness that we just talked about, incompatible with the idea of headship and submission, with the idea of there being a order in marriage. As we will see, this distinction, sometimes it's called hierarchy, okay, doesn't deny equal value, so both can fully bear the image of God and be equally human and still have order. So it's compatible with this idea of both reflecting the image of God. In fact, it's necessary for God's image. Okay. Um, this internal order versus distinctions and role. Okay. That's what we generally call a complementarian position. Egalitarians believe equal in role and dignity. Okay. No distinctions. For Christians, complementarians believe equal in dignity, different in role. Okay, and so the question is: When we see that they're both called to rule over the world, doesn't that imply that both are called to rule over the world? Aren't they both equally rulers? And so order would somehow change that. Um, but the fact that they're called to rule together doesn't necessi- necessitate a lack of internal order any more than a president's command to the army to engage in war eradicates the distinction between generals and soldiers, right? Collectively, they go to war, but there's still order within them. Collectively, they're filled with the authority of the president, but there's order within them. Okay. Now the question becomes, do we see in Adam and Eve, in that initial marriage, any difference in role? Um, all I've said so far is just that marriage is compatible, or this idea of order is compatible um, with chapter 1. Right? In the image of God, he created the male and female to rule and to reign as his representatives. Order may fit there, but do we actually see it when we have male and female in Adam and Eve in chapter 2? Okay? I know I'm framing the question, but the reason I'm doing so is because if this idea of headship and submission or the idea of hierarchy within marriage is just an aspect of the curse, what happens next, then we would assume what Jesus does is sets that right. If all we're talking about when we talk about in order is what we saw in Genesis 3.16, your desire will be for your husband, but he will dominate you, then we would expect Jesus, who sets right the fall, to set that right as well. In fact, that's exactly what most egalitarians, the ones who hold this equal in dignity and role, argue. 
But it's worth noting that the New Testament never roots its command for gender roles in the curse, but what precedes it. In other words, when the New Testament does talk about male and female in marriage, it doesn't go to Genesis 3, it goes to Genesis 2, before the fall, before the temptation itself. Okay, Here is the logic of the New Testament. As it says here in 1 Timothy, again, this is where Paul is talking about how these gender roles play out, not in marriage, but within the church. But it's remember, it's a relational reason. It has to do with relationships of men and women in the church reflecting something, okay? But notice his logic here. For Adam was formed first, then Eve, okay? So here's what we need to understand. This isn't merely made first because pigs were made before Adam. That doesn't make pigs king, right? Okay. Um, But Adam was formed first and then Eve was formed out of Adam, okay? In fact, this is what it says in 1 Corinthians. For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. And then notice this, neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. So Paul's uh, logic here for gender distinctions comes from the creation narrative itself. Basically three reasons. Adam was formed first, Eve was formed from Adam, and then Eve was created for Adam. Okay. Now, that last word for is an easy one to trip up on. Remember, Adam doesn't need a maid. He needs a suitable helper. The fact that woman was made for man is an expression of Adam's incompleteness on his own. He needed Eve. Okay. Um, but nonetheless, the logic is here. Unlike the animals, who were also biologically male and female, who were created simultaneously... God chose to create Adam and Eve differently. Adam out of the ground and Eve out of Adam. Adam first and then Eve. The New Testament finds that significant. Okay. Um, but, but, uh, but we also see, as I mentioned earlier, that Eve was made for Adam as a helper. Okay, that's what we see right here. And then also remember that Adam names Eve. Not just once, okay? The first time is significant, though, and this is something that's easy to miss, okay? Then when Eve is brought to Adam, Adam says, this is at last, bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh, she shall be called woman. Now, why is that significant? What happens right before this? God brought to Adam all the animals of the earth so that he could name them, and anything he named them, so were they named, In other words, uh, Adam is operating in the same responsibility and practice that he's already been doing here. He's been given the job to name, and he names woman, woman, okay, because she was taken out of man, okay. Um, When we uh, continue on, he gives her a name again. The man called his wife's name Eve. This is her personal name, her first name, right? Eve, because she was the mother of all living, Does Eve name Adam? No. Okay. But Adam names woman and Eve. Okay. Um, Here is a more important one. This is a big one theologically. In Genesis 2 and 3, it is Adam 
who is ultimately responsible for the command about the tree of knowledge and good and evil. Okay. And I'm not saying that Eve wasn't responsible for her choice to eat of the tree because she clearly was. She experiences the curse because you ate of the tree, right? There's consequence there. But I want you to notice how the author of Genesis talks about the command. First off, notice that God speaks the command directly three times. And when I say he speaks the command, it's the full form of literally, quote, the command which I gave you not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Okay, every time the command is mentioned, those three times I want to draw attention to. The first one is here in Genesis 2.19. Out of the ground the Lord God had formed. Nope, that's not what I want. I want this one. Okay. Genesis 2.16. And the Lord God commanded who? The man. Where's Eve at this point? Doesn't exist. The Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day you eat of it you shall surely die. This idea of the command is spoken next in the story when Adam is confronted. Remember what happens? Serpent talks with Eve. Eve eats. Eve gives to Adam. They see they're naked and unashamed. They hear God coming. They hide in the garden. And God says, Adam, where are you? And he starts his interrogation with Adam. And notice the wording here. This is the next time we encounter the command. He said to Adam, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? And then the final time we encounter this command verbally in the text is when Adam is judged. Okay, so here's the final wave of the formatting. Eve talks with the serpent. She eats of the fruit. She gives to Adam. He eats. They're naked and ashamed. They hide from God. God interrogates Adam. God interrogates Eve. And then he starts the judgment. And the judgment goes serpent, Eve, and finishes with Adam. It's not till God comes back around to Adam that we find the last reference to the command. And to Adam he said, because you've listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Okay. What I'm suggesting here, even though we're not looking at it, the text is not in front of us, you can see for yourself, God doesn't say to Eve, because you ate of the tree which I commanded you not to eat of, in pain you should bear forth children. Only in Adam is it referenced. It's referenced when he's given the command by himself before Eve's existence. It's referenced when he's confronted by God. And here it's spoken when Adam is judged. Putting this together, an amazing book with a terrible title. Neither complementarian nor egalitarian is not only a mouthful, but it's totally not true of her book. She is clearly a complementarian. Uh, But what Michelle Lee Barnwell does really well is she revisits the text and shows us what we've missed. Notice what she says. Thus, there is a striking and important pattern here. God gives the command directly to Adam, asks only Adam whether he broke the command, and specifically relates Adam's punishment to the command. It's not that Eve is exempt from obeying and suffering the consequences of her sin, since she's punished as well. Rather, we can note that from a literary perspective, the narrative is crafted in such a way as to draw special attention to Adam's special relationship and to the responsibility he has for keeping the command. Okay. In fact, just to you know, rub it in, when, God, when the command is broken, broken, God doesn't come looking for Adam and Eve. God comes in the garden, and notice what he says. 
But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? Or in some translations, Adam, where are you? Eve and Adam are both hiding. Eve and Adam have both eaten of the tree. God comes looking for Adam. Okay. Despite what some rabbis and early church fathers have said, the Bible roots the human fall, this whole idea of the fall, not in the sin of Eve, but in Adam. If you read some early church fathers, they will criticize all of womanhood because they're the ones that made everything go wrong. The Bible never does. It always leaves the blame with Adam. For example, here in Hosea. But like Adam, they transgressed the covenant. There they dealt faithlessly with me. Not like Eve, like Adam. Here in Romans. Okay, this is... This is a long passage. I'll just read it through, but catch the emphasis. It's very clear. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, that's Adam, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned, for sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin was not counted where there is no law. First note before we move on. Sin came into the world through who? Adam or Eve? Adam. Continuing. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, just in case we were unclear on who the one man was, it's Adam, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of who? Of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come, but the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died, how? Through the one man's trespass, that's Adam, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many." And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass, not Eve's, but Adam's, brought condemnation on all of us. But the free gift following many trespasses, because we've all sinned many times, the free gift of Jesus brought justification. Again, for if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification for life for all men. Again, we see this uh, in... Okay, we can't skip that one. Listen. For as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. Why do you sin? Because you're a sinner. Why are you a sinner? Because of Adam, not Eve. Okay. First Corinthians nails this too. First Corinthians fifteen twenty two. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all shall be made alive. So even though Eve sinned first in time, it's Adam's sin that brought about the fall. In fact, in First Timothy two fifteen, and we read this wrong all the time. Paul says here, Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Now, sometimes that has been used to imply that women can't hold doctrinally important positions because they're more gullible, because Eve was deceived. That's not the point. In fact, Paul says in, in Romans that he's worried about the whole church, and he says he does not want them to be deceived like Eve. That's something we can all do. Gullibility is something that humans are prone to. But the point is here that Eve was deceived, and guess who wasn't? Adam. Adam knew the command. He heard it, if you will, from God's own mouth. Eve heard it mediatorily through Adam's instruction. He knew the word. When the serpent says to Eve, did God really say? 
Eve doesn't know that answer the same way Adam does. Adam was there. He heard it with his own mouth. He was not deceived. He rebelled. Okay. Now, I can't remember if I'm going to bring this up later, so let me bring it up now. A while ago, there was a book uh, called Wild at Heart that kind of raged wide in issues of manhood within the church. And the author argued that Adam's act of eating after Eve was ultimately romantic. That he loved Eve so much he would rather live fallen with her than not fallen without her. And that is not what the Bible says. The Bible says very clearly that Adam was not absent when Eve argued with the serpent, was right there with her and said nothing. Before Eve eats of the fruit, Adam has a sin of omission. He does not speak up. Um, But when we get to chapter 3, what we find there is ironic. It's a reversal of how things are supposed to happen. Remember how man and woman are created? They're created under God. God is their creator. They're to represent him and rule over creation. But what happens in, in Genesis 2? The serpent speaks to the woman who listens to the serpent. The man listens to the woman and nobody listens to God. Okay? It's moving in the wrong direction. Okay? Uh, in fact, the irony that I'm speaking of here is even recognized by discovering biblical equality, the verifiable Bible of egalitarian interpretation. They believe there's no difference between man and woman, but notice they say here, the couple's listening to the snake rather than God is ironic. Why wouldn't Eve listening, or excuse me, why wouldn't Adam listening to Eve rather than God also be part of that irony? Okay. The interrogation and the sentencing has a chiastic structure. Okay. Chiasm comes from the Greek character chi, an X. Okay. Um, some chiasms are really simple. When Jesus says, do not give or cast pearls before swine or give what is holy to dogs, lest they turn and tear you to pieces, lest they trample you underfoot. That's chiastic. Okay? He says, don't give to dogs or pigs, lest pigs do what pigs do and dogs do what dogs do. Okay? So it's, it's these two that go together. Sorry, this is hard to do uh, from up here. Um, so you have A, B, B, A. That's the way that it's formatted, like an X. Okay? In larger paragraphs, a chiasm dials in, zeroes in on a center point. And so you have A and A1, you have B and B1, you have C and C1, and then you have a centerpiece. Okay? I know this doesn't mean anything to you, but the Hebrews love it. The Bible is full of them. Okay? Notice this one here. When God comes, he comes looking for Adam, and he starts by asking him questions. Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you? And he says, the woman which you gave me. And he turns to the woman, and he interrogates Eve. And then the Eve says, the serpent, he spoke, and I ate. And he turns to the serpent, and he judges the serpent. It's significant that that's right at the center, because guess what comes right there? The problem that God is going to address, right? Um, But then he walks back out and judges Eve, and then Adam. Okay, so he begins with Adam and he ends with Adam. That brings focus on the significance of Adam. Okay, that's what chiasm does. Okay. Um, the curse, again, remember, doesn't make new things, but it makes them worse. And so now the man still works, but that work is toil. 
The woman still births, but that birth is difficult and dangerous. Therefore, their relationship, the one that we saw in Genesis 2, the order of male and female still exists, but now it's broken. And that's exactly what we find in the curse. And so now that order is twisted into abuse instead of good leadership. It's twisted into rebellion instead of submission. Okay. In other words... In the curse, God proclaimed that for the man, the ground would be hard, for the woman, birth would be hard, and her husband would be hard-hearted. Right? And in fact, that's what Jesus picks up on in Matthew 19 when he talks about divorce. Again, this is not a justification of the subjection of women. That is an awful consequence of the fall that men would dominate women. Not just physical strength, not just the difference biologically, but a consequence of broken relationships in the fall. We can see this change of relationship, by the way, in Adam's words to his wife. Okay. Um, Eve doesn't talk about Adam in this story, but Adam talks about Eve quite a lot. Okay. Here's the first one when she's created. Uh, I want this one. The man said, this is at last, bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Okay, so Adam speaks of his wife here in terms of intimacy. He takes ownership of her. He embraces the similarities. But after the fall, the man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree that I ate. It goes from bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh connection and intimacy to the woman that you gave me. In fact, listen here, when Eve is created, he declares that she is like him in being bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. But there's no corresponding response from Eve. Eve doesn't say, also, you are my bone of bone and flesh of flesh. She's surprisingly silent in the text. Okay. After this comment about their sameness, his next comment reflects their separation. Adam distances himself from Eve by blaming her, the person whom he was supposed to be united, whereas Eve blames a third party, the serpent. Although earlier he considered Eve a suitable companion because she's like him, he now describes her as the woman who you gave to be with me. Instead of using kinship language to describe his relationship, uh, her relationship to him, he now speaks impersonally of the woman as the one who was given to him by a third party. His words no longer reflect an intimacy with Eve. As Alan John Hauser remarks, she has become an object, not a companion. Adam's objectification of Eve is even more striking because only Adam receives any explicit instruction about their unity. Right? Therefore, a man shall leave father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Who is the active mover towards intimacy in that sentence? The man. Okay. Despite the fact that we tend to think of intimacy as female domain, the Bible sees man's role in leadership as being a role that leads to intimacy. But we see that broken in the curse. The man is the one who was to leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife so that they may become one flesh, a union that involves numerous aspects beyond the sexual to include spiritual, emotional, and kinship relationships. Adam is supposed to achieve their reunification of the two, right? Made, woman made out of the man, bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh, there show the two become one. But instead, he fails profoundly. This is a critical but mostly overlooked aspect of Adam's failure. Now pause. When we get to Jesus Christ, the last Adam, 
he also experiences that separation and a call to unify, and he succeeds. And he does it in a very particular way, right? He comes and he dies. He offers his body as a living sacrifice and therefore reunites and unifies what has been broken. He succeeds where Eve fails. Okay. Now, the New Testament then doesn't eradicate this order. It redeems it. Okay. It doesn't leave it where we find it in the curse where these relationships are frayed and where they're fraught with abuse. Where men, instead of headship, are domineering. But it does redeem them. Okay? Now, of course, the classic passage uh, to talk about this from is Ephesians chapter 5. Okay. Now, notice I'm opening up here in verse 21, and I'm opening up here because this is where the idea of submission is first breached. Okay? And so... What Paul has just said is basically that we all need to be filled with the Holy Spirit, and that does a couple of things. The last one he says it does is it leads to us submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Then he addresses husbands and wives. Following husbands and wives, he addresses parents and children, and then finally he addresses masters and slaves. Okay? All three of those are relationships that involve submission. Okay? And so submitting uh, one another out of reverence for Christ is the topic heading of what follows as is illustrated in three common old world relationships. Okay? Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also their wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle, or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves the wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Okay, a couple of threads here that we can already see coming together. One we see a parallel between the husband and wife relationship and this image of God idea. Okay? Just as the husband and wife relate to one another, so also Christ and the church. Second, notice here uh, that it's rooted in that initial setup of Genesis 2, which is why he quotes from Genesis 2.24. And then finally, it seems to imply an order. Okay. Husband and wife don't seem to be engendered but interchangeable terms. In other words, they're not significantly synonymous with spouse. He doesn't say spouse, love your spouse, but he sees an order here. One spouse is called head and the other is called to submit and respect. One spouse is like Christ and the other spouse in this relationship is like the church. Okay, And so husband and wife maintain... An order here. Now, sometimes that is overthrown at the very beginning because uh, some people say, now, wait a minute. When this whole topic stops or starts, doesn't it say submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ? In other words, isn't Christian relationships one to be of mutual submission? Now, actually, depending on what people mean by that, 
That could be an absolutely true statement. What's more important here is, is that what Paul means here? And here's the thing, okay? I'm going to rush through this part and not deal with all of this, but for one, this is not the only place where husbands and wives are addressed in the New Testament. We also find them addressed in 1 Corinthians 14, in Colossians 3, and in 1 Peter 3. And in each one, God call, or excuse me, the word, uh, or Paul, our author, or Peter, our author, calls the wife to submit, but never the husband. That distinction is a consistent one, even when we don't find submitting one another in the context. Um, second, uh, here in, um, in Ephesians, um, we have three pairs, husband and wife, parents and children, masters and slaves, and in each one we see one directional subjection. Okay? Children are to submit to parents. That's the next thing on the list. That doesn't mean that parents are to submit to children. Now, there are things they're not supposed to do. They're not to exacerbate their children. They're not to, you know, abuse their children. But there is still a one-directional submission. In other words, I would suggest to you, when he says submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ, he recognizes we live in a bunch of different relationships that involve submission. And so submitting to one another is the right way to say it, but it's a one-directional way. In other words, I would suggest to you that Ephesians 5.21 requires a principle that I have called delayed definition. We can't know what Paul means by saying submitting to one another until we read what follows, and then we know what he means. Okay? In a similar way, I think I've got this illustration in here. I just have to pull up the passage. Here we are. Okay, so here's the pattern in, even, uh, in Ephesians. It's all one directional. Wives to husbands, children to parents, slaves to masters. Um, but this is what I want here. Okay. When you read the mouse is on the desk, you have to delay what I'm talking about, the definition, until we finish it. He's eating cheese. But it could also be the mouse on the desk is broken. Okay. You don't know what type of mouse I'm talking about until you finish the thought. What I'm suggesting to you is we don't know what type of submission Paul is talking about until we keep reading. Okay, Moving on. Two words are used here in this passage. Submission and being the head. Headship. Okay. Now, a couple of things. First off, the Bible doesn't call men to be the head. It assumes that. The Bible also doesn't call men to put women into submission. Period. Anywhere. But what is headship? There is an argument out there that argues that this word used for head means source, like the head of a river, right? In other words, in the ancient world, men were significantly the provider for their wives in a way that's no longer true today. It wasn't a statement of authority. It was just, it was just the source. Um, there is an article by Wayne Grudem uh, following this word kafale, head, in the ancient world that just puts that argument to, dead, to, to bed. But one of the things he points out that's really interesting is even when this word is used of source as a river, it's used in the plural. But here we're talking about the singular. The, in the Greek mind, rivers had heads, not a head. Um, but also in the context here, authority is used directly. Okay, So here in Ephesians... Husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church. But notice, um, is this what I want? Sorry, like I said, I'm jumping notes here. Okay, this will do. 
But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ. The head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. Same word here, but it's used of a broader relationship than the one of just head uh, of husband and wife. Um, Is it merely here that Jesus is the source of every man? Is it merely here that God is the source of Jesus, or is it implying an order? Okay. Look at verse 10. He says, this is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. Now, if you want to know what because of the angels means, I don't know. I know that Paul knows what he meant, and I assume the Corinthians knew too, or why would Paul say it? Okay. But when he talks here about this idea of this relationship between men and women and headship and then evokes the idea of authority, he ties headship to authority. And that's the only point I want to make here. Okay. When we go back to Ephesians here, um, uh, we, can, we can make a claim here that I think is important. Okay. Does that mean... A man has no role in nourishing or providing or cherishing for. Of course not. In fact, Paul says exactly that, that he should nourish and cherish his wife. It's true that one of the functions of the head is to provide nurture and support to the rest of the body. So it's not always necessary to choose between the two options, source and authority. Um, Nurture, support, provision, and protection are all part of leadership exercised properly, but not to the exclusion of the exercise of authority. Okay. One last place here. This saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, what we would call a pastor or an elder, okay, he desires a noble task. And then notice this. He says that this person who desires to be an officer, an overseer, a pastor of the church, must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? So the role here of husband, father, and pastor, elder is parallel. But what I want you to notice here is that management and care are used synonymously. He says, if someone can't manage their household, how will they care for the church? These are not mutually exclusive ideas. They go together. Sometimes I think it's helpful to think of a father. Okay? A father can't just call the shots. He's also responsible to provide. A father can't just be authority, he's also to be loving. Okay? These ideas go together, but the question is, does headship imply any aspect of order or authority? And the answer seems to be consistently yes. In other words, headship speaks of leadership responsibility or authority. Now, here is something that I would suggest. If you want to grow as a Bible reader, and maybe even as a Christian, um, you should have a tendency of recognizing where your cackles go up when you read scripture and questioning the cackles first. And the reason I say that is because you swim in culture and don't know it. You're shaped in your opinions and you never think that. You have a lens that you look through, but you don't know the lens is there. Okay? It's like running into the sliding glass door because you didn't know it was closed. So sometimes we need to open the door and then walk. Okay. I would suggest to you that we all know culturally that we have an anti-authoritarian bent. That's part of our proclivity. It's part of our, uh, our heritage, right? Give me liberty or give me death. Okay. And so we can't be sure we handle the scriptures well until we deal with that. And so let me deal with that. First off, please understand 
that when Jesus returns to the world, he will not be formed as a perfect democracy, but a monarchy. In fact, let me push it further. It will be a benevolent dictatorship, total and complete authority in the hands of one man who just happens to be perfect, and so we should be okay with that. But um, we've already seen on top of that that in the curse, uh, he shall rule over you. Authority in the world that it works in works brokenly. Abuse is what we find and even what we expect. And the Bible is full of stories where those in power, including husbands, abuse their authority. Okay? So also, we shouldn't be naive and, uh, and not watch out for these things. Okay? Um, Matthew here. When Jesus talks to leadership within the church, greatness in the church, authority in the church, he doesn't throw out the concept. He does redefine it. Jesus called to them and he said, you know that the rulers of Gentiles lord authority over them and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant and whoever would be first among you must be slave. He doesn't throw out the idea of great or first or authority. He does redefine it. Authority biblically is about responsibility and not privilege. Authority biblically is about what you owe those under you, not what they owe you. Okay? And Jesus nails that down for us and talks about it here. We have to recognize the possibility of righteous authority. Loving authority. Consider a bloodline monarchy. Imagine that you're sitting in a kingdom where a man comes to the throne and his only right to the throne is the fact that he was born into the royal family. Do we honestly believe that that relationship is inherently unjust and that the only righteous act such a king could make would be to leave the throne and establish a democracy? Do we believe it's possible for the monarch to rule righteously? Even our government recognizes that, re- that giving the authority to the people doesn't remove abuse, does it? There's still the possibility of the majority abusing the minority. In fact, the checks and balances of our government is why, um, uh, why World War II guy, big cigars, super famous. Yeah, Churchill, which is why Churchill called... American and British democracy, Western democracy, the worst, best form of government, okay? Because, because it is a terrible form of government, but it's better than all the rest. And the reason is because of checks and balances, because it's visible. And so the abuses can be seen and hopefully responded to. Okay, I, we've got to do this. It's too important, okay? Here's the deal. One, Authority is an inescapable concept, one that we cannot live without unless you live alone. As soon as you involve another person, authority becomes an issue. It's inescapable because of our limitations. Consider education. Education requires authority, uh, and you need that because you cannot know what you are learning. So you have to assume the authority of your teacher. Without that, no instruction is possible. If you have to do every experiment yourself and you have to go walk the soil of China to know if it's actually there, then it's not education. Education says, I can't be everywhere, and so authority makes that happen. Think of roads and speed limits. 
We need those so that we can safely and fairly all use the same roads. Think of courts and prisons. Okay? We need things like that because of our own limitations, limitations of expertise, limitations of time, uh, limitations of invoking our own need for justice. Okay. Trying to live without authority never escapes it. It only pushes it into the shadows. Okay. Consider with me the conspiracy theorist. A person who is so anti-authoritarian that whatever reason and whatever topic cannot be trusted because it comes from the man. But where do they get their understanding of reality? From an anonymous source on an angel file website. Does that remove their limitations? Does it remove the need for authority? No, it just makes their authority questionable. Because it comes from an unvalidated and unpublic and unaccountable source. Okay. Um, why does our self-expression culturally look like everybody else's? Why do our forms of acting out and seeking to be independent you know, come with a label that 100,000 other people are buying and you know they're buying it because if they didn't, they wouldn't, they'd stop selling it, right? We are more subject to culture than we think. We're more subject to authority than we think. It is inescapable, okay? But here's the good news. First, all authority is limited by design. The idea of ultimate and total authority removed from the concept of God does not exist in human life. Okay? And those limits are shaped by their purpose. A teacher is authority over you in the classroom, but not in your bedroom. A teacher is authority over you during your education, uh, but not after you leave the institution. A teacher is an authority over you over the topic of your education, but not all the other areas. Right? Okay. Uh, with government, the authority of government is limited to this nation and not that nation. Okay. And so it is escapable by leaving it. Authority over public life, but not private life. Okay. Authority, uh, consider the Bill of Rights. There are certain things that our government cannot do that we recognize to be certain and unalienable. Right? Those limitations are all shaped by the purpose. What is the purpose of government? Public interaction. And so that's where it is. What is the purpose of education? Education. And so only in those places is it limited. Parenthood. Parents don't have authority over all children. Let me say it again. Parents don't have authority over all children, but only theirs. Okay? And it's not expressed completely or in the same way over adult children, is it? It's limited, and it's shaped by its purpose, because hopefully the goal of chi uh, child rearing is adulthood, right? We see this in the Bible as well. Consider here in Acts chapter 4. Here, Jesus' disciples, who have been called to submit to their leaders, stand before the Sanhedrin, the religious leaders of the day, and the religious leaders say, Do not speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered, Whether it's right in the sight of God to listen to to you rather than God, you must judge, for we cannot speak but of what we've seen and heard. They say, this is above your pay grade. Right? This is God's authority and not yours. Okay? So all authority is limited, and that limit is shaped by its purpose. Second, all authorities are interconnected. They don't function independently. Consider with me the public school. That form of education is an institution of the state. Why? Because the state has a vested interest in well-educated citizens, right? 
But they're separate, but they're interconnected. Okay? Parents are not just expected to raise functioning adults, but good citizens. And that's why this idea constantly comes up of government having a vested interest in families. Right? An organization, organization like CPS is the opposite version of this. Government agencies or authoritarian agencies are interconnected in accountability. And that's another thing. All authorities by structure are held accountable. Okay? If not in time as they should be, at the very least, ultimately to God. There is no one who stands in a position of power who won't give an account for the way that they use that power when they stand before Jesus. Okay? Let me review those again really quickly. Okay? Authority is inescapable because of our limitations. Trying to live without authority doesn't escape it. It just pushes it to the shadows. All authority by design is limited, and that limit is shaped by its purpose. All authorities are interconnected and work together, and all authorities are held accountable. Okay? That means that a marriage does not exist in isolation of other things. It means if you're a wife in this room right now and you are being physically abused, you call the cops like a good Christian. It means if you know of abuse going on in a particular organization, you call the cops like a good Christian. Okay? The idea of recognizing authority here in marriage involves all of the things we've talked about, especially, and this is the one I want to dial in on, that it is limited by its purpose. That the authority exists for a reason. Do you know what that reason is? Have you even considered what that reason is? Why is the man given authority? Okay. Notice in our passage that Paul doesn't call the husbands to heads. He doesn't see, husbands, be the head. He just assumes it. Okay. He assumes that aspect, and one of the reasons he does so is because that concept is a relatively common one in the ancient world. Okay. The order of marriage was one that you could find in Christianity and in pagan circles, in Judaism and in Christian churches. Okay. Um, for the husbands, he doesn't call them to be the head. He doesn't call them to lead. He doesn't call them to be the authority, does he? He calls them to love. Okay. The reason he calls them to love their wives is because the purpose of marriage, remember, which shapes its authority, is that intimate one flesh union. The goal of marriage is that the two should become one. The man has a specific role, a headship role, an authority role in that, but it is shaped by its purpose. And so the way that that authority is expressed is in love. Okay? I'm not saying that he should be authoritarian over all territories, but in a loving way. I'm saying that love is the primary expression of his authority. Now listen. What Paul calls husbands to hear by way of illustration by calling the husbands to love their wives and specifically the heads to love the bodies and the head to lay their life down for the body is countercultural. Paul is taking a cultural concept and he is, if you'll forgive me the pun, turning it on its head. Okay. Again, Michelle Lee Barnwell. The normal expectation for the metaphor is that the head is the leader and provider of the body. Consequently, it's the head's responsibility to ensure its own safety and the body's responsibility to sacrifice itself for the sake of the head. Will you just think about the biology of the metaphor? If one part of your body is going to choose to take a bullet, the head is the one that doesn't do it. And yet it calls the head to sacrifice for the body. 
Okay. As, it, as she continues here, as a result, we'd expect that Paul would instruct the wife, the body, to be willing to sacrifice for the sake of the husband, the head. Such instructions would be the moral logic, since according to common reasoning, the body cannot survive without the head. But that's not what we find. Rather, Paul states the reverse. The husband as the head is called to give himself up for the wife as his body, just as Christ The authority over the church, the one who you will give an account to, the one who rules over all things, gave himself up for the church, which is his body. Furthermore, where the normal expectation would be for the body being the one to love the head. Now, where she's getting this idea from, side note, is this language of head and body is evoked regularly for Rome and the emperor. The emperor is the head of the body, so love the head. The emperor is the head of the body, so sacrifice yourself for the head. But where the normal expectation would be for the body being the one to love the head, Paul states that the husband as the head is to love his wife as the body. Christ loved the church. The fundamental nature of the reversal is critical. It would have struck Paul's audience not only as odd, but even more so as being against nature. I said to you earlier that Jesus doesn't uh, remove this order, but he does redeem it. And this is what I meant. Paul radically reshapes headship here because of Jesus. And that's exactly what we see here in Philippians. Have this mind among yourselves, which was yours in Christ Jesus. We should all be like Jesus, he says, who though it was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped or literally to be held onto. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. And it continues, therefore God has highly exalted him. But notice this, Jesus already had all the authority and power and the glory. He did not consider equality with God something to be held onto, but made himself a servant, humbled himself. How did Christ use his authority to die? The husband here is not defined as the first to decide, as the primary decision maker, but the first to die. I love this quote from C.S. Lewis. This is from The Four Loves. The sternest feminist need not grudge my sex the crown offered to it in the Christian mystery, for it is of thorns. Again, the New Testament doesn't call husbands to be the authority. You are the authority because you are the man, and that's part of what it means to be male. That's part of what it means to be husband. But the way that that's expressed primarily is as Christ did in sacrifice, in love. Now, we also need to talk about submission. In fact, I don't like the word submission. I think it's confusing, and so I'm going to use the word subjection. If you have an older translation, be subject to your husbands is what it says. But the real reason I want to use subjection is because submission speaks of an attitude or a posture. Subjection speaks of order. And order is the emphasis here. Okay. Kostenberger says, The kind of submission scripture is talking about is not akin to slavery where one person owns another. It's not subservience, where one person is doing the bidding of another without intelligent input or interaction. It's not even truly hierarchical, since this conjures up notions of a military-style, top-down chain of command in which the soldier is asked to obey, no questions asked, the order of his superior. Okay. Here's Ambrose. Woman must respect her husband, not be a slave to him. 
She is consented to be ruled, not to be forced. Again, not husbands, put your wife in submissions. Wives, submit to your husbands. They are willing and they are active in that submission. Consent to be ruled, not to be forced. The one whom a yoke would fit is not fit for the yoke of marriage. As to man, he should guide his wife like a pilot, honor her as a partner in life, and share with her as a co-heir of grace. I wish we had time to look at First Peter where that phrase, co-heir of grace, goes. Uh, we don't. Um, but let's keep moving here. Okay, here's the problem. We don't always understand that this concept of subjection, okay, in all sorts of ordered organizations there are order. And they involve subjection. We've mentioned a bunch of them tonight. Students and teachers, parents and children, boss and employees. All of them are subjection. Not all of them are the same. Do you know what kind of subjection we find in marriage? Stephen Clark wrote a book that D.A. Carson called Magisterial. And when D.A. Carson says things like that, I read such books. And I can agree that he wrote a fascinating 800-page book in the 80s as a um, Pentecostal Catholic celibate about man and woman called Man and Woman in Christ. And it is the most thoughtful and thorough treatment on gender I have ever read. And he wrote it in 1981. It's an amazing book. But one of the things he does well is he talks about the type of subjection we're dealing with in marriage, and he does it by showing how it's different than other types of subjection. And what he's going to do here, what we're going to look at, is he's going to talk about two types of differences. Some subjection relationships uh, are different by their origin. How do they come about? And then subjection relationships differ by the way that they're executed, by the way that they're handled, okay? Different in their... Uh, conduct, okay? So, notice this. Okay? When we're talking about different origins, he talks about three primary types. Domination or coercive subordination, okay? This is what he says. Domination is subordination based on force. A slave or a conquered person is subject to domination. Domination could, I think this is really interesting, possibly be for the person's good. The domination involved in our mental hospitals, at least according to some theories, is for the good of the patient. And also, God sometimes exercises domination. But marriage is not a domination or a coercive subordination. Like seven brides for seven brothers is not the ideal in marriage. Right? We're not talking about kidnapping. We're not talking about force. Okay? There's also mercenary subordination. Okay. Mercenary subordination is a relationship in which there's some kind of bargain. The head or the ruler in the relationship gains from the subordinate services. The subordinate, in terms, receives a reward. Okay. This is what happens at work. Right? You have a different role than your boss does. The boss has a role to, to provide in the bargain, and you have a role to... Uh, you know, to serve in some way. Now, notice what he adds here, because this gets at a good point. The relationship, mercenary subordination, can be good uh, or unjust, okay? It's good when they both get a fair return. It's equal work for equal pay, but it doesn't have to be that way. The employee can get more than the work they're doing because they're squandering their time or what have you or cheating by copying things off the Internet. Or they can do all the work and be underpaid, but it's still mercenary in the fact that it's an exchange of goods and services, okay? 
But marriage is not a mercenary subordination. I mentioned this a few weeks ago, but that Paula Cole song where it's a division of labor that basically says, if you will do these things for me, I will do the dishes if you pay all the bills, is not what we're talking about in marriage. It's not what, what a husband provides is a house and an income, and what a wife provides is sex and children. Okay? It's not mercenary in its nature. Instead, it's ordered not by an agreement, a tit-for-tat agreement by a contract, but by voluntary, okay? And this is how uh, Clark defines voluntary. Voluntary subordination is freely chosen by the subordinate. Both persons in the relationship want the relationship. Even when the subordinate does not get an explicit choice, as children do not, the relationship is voluntary because it's willed by them, okay? So children don't get a choice, but they want to be children to the parents. They want parents Okay. And so notice this. This is the type. Marriage is not to be comparable to subordination and slavery. It's not forced. Marriage is not to be comparable to subordination in the workplace, mercenary. It's not in exchange of goods and services. It is instead voluntary where both want the relationship and the person who is on the, the lower end of the order volunteers their submission. Okay. But they also differ in how they're conducted. Okay. And I'm aware my headings are wrong here. Um, it's a picture and not a text slide, so I can't fix it. Um, but they differ in their conduct. Okay. So in conduct, some subordination is oppression. Oppressive subordination occurs in a relationship that works for the benefit of the ruler and the harm of the subordinate. Conquest normally leads to oppression as the conqueror exploits the conquered. But oppression is not always based on force. For example, some would hold that the capitalistic system oppresses even where it cannot exercise force. In other words, what he's suggesting here is that marriage is not one that is for the sake of or for the benefit of the head. Okay? At the cost of, uh, of the wife. There's also care subordination. This is the relationship between a parent and a child. Okay. We already saw that it's a voluntary relationship, parent and child, but the way that it's executed is in care. Okay. Care subordination characterizes a relationship in which the head is dedicated to the care of the subordinate and engages in the relationship for the benefit of the subordinate. Okay. In other words, when we parent children, it's not that there aren't fringe benefits, but we do it for the child. It's for them. We bear the cost for their benefit. Uh, the parent-child relationship is the most obvious example uh, when parents rear their children well, but the master-disciple relationship is also an example of such subordination. Why did Paul, or excuse me, why did Jesus make his disciples his disciples? To care for them, to love them well, he says, to instruct them, to train them up. Okay, it's for them. But that's not what marriage is. A wife is not a project. Instead, it's unity subordination, okay? This is specifically the one that involves husband and wife, and there are other versions of unity subordination. Unity subordination occurs in a relationship that's carried on for the sake of unity or a higher cause. This is the kind of subordination that's integral to genuine community. Care subordination and unity subordination often occur in the same relationship. For example, the relationship between a pastor and his church. There's a sense where you can look at that relationship and the pastor is to be feeding the sheep. But there is also a unity subordination. We're coming together 
for the cause of Christ, and we've appointed an elder to lead the way in that cause. Okay? It's voluntary. You're not here against your will, I hope. Okay? But in marriage, it's the same way. The subordination is chosen not because nature demands it, not because, again, there's some trait in women that makes them weaker or more emotional or any of those things. Once again, the Bible never says those things. What it does say is that God has a divine ordained order and that order is oriented towards one flesh relationship. If we weren't trying for the two to be one, then there wouldn't need to be a head and a body. There wouldn't need to be leadership and subordination. Okay. Now, I actually find all of that to be tremendously clarifying, but there's some other things that need to be said. First, this type of subordination doesn't mean that the wife has no authority. Okay. Listen to this in 1 Timothy. I would have younger widows marry, bear children, manage their households, and give their adversaries no occasion for slander. Okay. That word there for manage the household, who's doing the managing there? Women. Trained by older women to do it well, to manage their households. But here's what you would probably miss. That's not what I want. Oh, drat. I'll read it off my paper. The wife has a ruling function within the household. This is expressed, as we just saw in 1 Timothy 5.14, which says they should rule their household. The Greek word here is oikodespoiton, to house rule. The verb despoiton is related etymologically to the English word despot. The wife's role thus involves a real governmental function. Although the husband is the head of the house, the wife functions under him as someone who rules the house. Chrysostomum, 4th century teacher, Christian, describes her as a second authority. In other words, the husband's headship over the house neither relieves the wife of her responsibility, nor makes her passive, nor does it make her a simple servant in the house. Okay. Remember, Genesis says that male and female together, and that's not just in marriage, that's in society, are to rule over the earth. That makes them co-rulers. Okay. Um, second, this subordination doesn't eradicate the value of the wife. As Clark points out here, the head and the subordinate can be both of equal worth and value. In fact, they can be equal in many other ways and still be in a relationship involving subordination. The subordination can even be of greater rank and dignity as Jesus was in relationship to his parents. And what he's referring to there is this passage in Luke. Have you ever thought about this? It says here of Jesus, he went down with Joseph and Mary and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. Who has the greatest worth and value in that relationship? Jesus. But he submits, he surrenders, he's subjected to his parents. Okay. In fact, when we look at the Trinity, we find that Jesus is also subject to the Father. Okay, that there's an order in the Trinity. Okay, now pause with me because this is really significant. Listen here. Then comes the end when Jesus delivers the kingdom of God to the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he's put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. Okay. 
God puts everything under Jesus' feet. And then notice Paul's significant clarification here. But when it says all things are put into subjection, it's plain that it accepts he who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subject to Jesus, the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. When it's all done, even though Jesus is fully God, equally God, he will still be the Son and not the Father. He will subject himself to the Father. That is not a denial of dignity or worth or even equality, but it is an order. And notice it is an order in the image of God, in God himself. For us to understand who God is in and of himself, we need ordered relationships to understand it. Okay. Jesus is the Son, not the Father, but Jesus is God and equal to the Father. Okay, nerd glasses for just a second. Some say, yeah, but that only applies to the economic trinity. Here's what they mean. That only is because Jesus took on flesh and became the Son. Two problems with that. One, why did the Son come to earth? Because the Father sent him. Before he was incarnate, he was still sent. Okay, that's subjection. Two, marriage is also a temporary relationship, so it's irrelevant. Right? Didn't we see that? Male and female are joined together till death do us part, and then it's over. And so if the image is significant for saying something about the Trinity and it's temporary, fine. It doesn't change the idea here, okay? Now, another clarification. This subordination is not rooted in ability. I've said that multiple times tonight. There's just no biblical basis for that. Again, it's not because men are better leaders. In fact, you all know of relationships where wives are much more capable of leaders. It's not about ability. Okay? It's about the orientation of God's design. And because it's not about ability, it doesn't necessitate who does what. And I always think this is so hilarious. Just because you're the head, it doesn't mean that you keep the checks balanced. Is that how it works in a company? Does a CEO go, I can't allow anyone to do the books because I'm the boss? It doesn't, it doesn't even make any sense. Any good leader knows to delegate where abilities are better than his own. That's, that's true in all relationships. Why wouldn't it be true in marriage? Male, female, husband, wife doesn't explain who does what in the marriage. Okay. Also, and this one's important. This subordination does not mean that the wife follows her husband into sin. We already saw that both Paul and Peter, against the culture of their day, recognize that a wife's faith is not subject to her husband's permission. Peter says, if you're married to an unbeliever, do you understand how f for real rare that is in the ancient world? The general running advice was, you keep your husband's religion, obviously. But both Paul and Peter speak to women married to unchristian men, and they don't say, surrender your faith. Okay. Um, Peter does call women to obey even their unbelieving husbands. The order we're talking about is not just an order in marriage, nor is it an order that's required just because your spouse is doing their side of it. You don't have to wait till your wife submits to sacrificially love her. And you don't have to, um, you, you don't get to opt out of that sacrificial love. That's the same way. I tried to say it both ways. It doesn't matter. Okay. Peter says, though, that women should obey even their unbelieving husbands. But however, Wendy Alsop points out, 
I don't believe that 1 Peter 3 is dealing with behavior that draws a wife into sin. In the context of illegal behavior, behavior involving physical or sexual abuse, the Bible shows different levels of response based on the seriousness of the sin and the breadth of potential victims. Consider Abigail's example in 1 Samuel 25. When her wicked husband provoked King David, she intervened and convinced David not to attack, preventing much bloodshed. And remember, she's held up as a good example of a wife, one that David recognizes and goes, I wish this was my wife. And after, after Nabal dies, uh, she becomes his wife. Okay. Uh, contrary, uh, so Abigail was commended for interceding to limit the scope of the victim of her husband's sin. In contrast, Sapphira's example in Acts 5 shows God's judgment on a woman who followed her husband into sin instead of standing up against it. Remember what happens? Ananias comes in and he says, yeah, we sold everything, here it all is, and he falls down dead. Sapphira comes in not knowing her husband is dead, and Peter goes, hey, how much did you get for this? And she says, everything, and she follows suit in the same way. Okay? But really, this just aligns with the limitations of authority we talked about already. Your fa- uh, a husband is not an ultimate authority over a woman. He is an authority in the context of marriage that is related to other relationships that we need to keep in mind. I already mentioned one, the government, as represented by the police. Let me, rep- uh, let me remind you of another one, church membership and church leadership. When churches respond to expressions of abuse of power within the church by reminding women to submit to their husband, they are neglecting their own authority and failing Christ in doing what they need to do, which is not perpetuate the abuse but confront the husband and so these limitations we've already talked about okay what is called for however is a particular way of resisting authority that i like to call submissive rebellion remember i made a contrast between submission and subjection here i mean submission i mean an attitude that desires for the relationship to be one of obedience and resists in a particular way peter and john are regularly arrested by the government and told not to preach in Christ. They don't stop. That's true. They also don't spit in the cops' faces. Right? This is what I call submissive rebellion. This is what we see in Jesus. He is unjustly put to trial. The way that he responds to that is neither by not testifying to the truth, right? He's provocative. Pilate, you don't have any authority that doesn't come to you from God. Right? He speaks. He says, you want to hear the truth? you will see the Son of Man coming in power. Okay, We want to talk about authority? It's me. right? Jesus is clear. When we look at the civil rights movement, that is submissive rebellion, isn't it? Maintains this is unjust and we will not stand for it, and then submits to even the abuse of that injustice and doesn't respond in kind. Okay? I really like this sentence here from Recovering Biblical Manhood and Womanhood. I mentioned discovering biblical equality as the Bible of egalitarian. This is probably the Bible of complementarianism. Wayne Grudem and John Piper. It's good. It's not great. They've really just focused on the same two things and the same six passages for 35 years. I don't understand. Um, But I do like this comment. Even where a Christian wife may have to stand with Christ against the sinful will of her husband, she can have a spirit of submission, a disposition to yield. She can show by her attitude and behavior that she does not like resisting his will and that she longs for him to forsake sin and lead in righteousness so that her disposition to honor him as head can again produce harmony. 
I don't know what else to call that, but insanely divinely empowered. It doesn't fit the paradigm, does it? Which makes us think of Christ. Okay. Let me sum it up really quickly, and then I just have one more statement. In marriage, husbands are called to be like Christ in sacrificial love. In marriage, wives are called to be like Christ in ordered subjection, just like he is to the Father. Both are necessary. Both are needed. All of these things we've talked about is what subordination doesn't mean, but it must mean something. At the end of the day, we can explain away all these misunderstandings, and that's important. Um, All these limitations and clarifications are significant. They need to be said, but they don't remove the command. I'll finish with the words of Stephen Clark. We are confronted with a situation today in which circumstances make it difficult to apply the scriptural teaching on the roles of men and women. Amen? That's where we live. But we are also confronted with a teaching in scripture which presents itself to us as applicable as long as we are still men and women and as long as we want to correspond faithfully to God's purpose for the human race. Also true. Notice what he says. We may need much wisdom on how to apply it so that it is life-giving and so that God's intention can be truly accomplished. But if we're truly going to submit ourselves to Scripture and allow the Scripture itself to instruct us on how it intends itself to be taken, we have to seek a way of applying it. Ultimately, this isn't about submission to spouses. This is about submission to Jesus according to his word. And so he finishes by saying this. The real issue is not whether to apply the scriptural teaching, but how? Okay. Now again, I apologize for just opening a whole bunch of beginnings. At best, I think I've scrubbed away a bunch of bad ways of thinking, but that's such a win. That's such a win in our day and age. Uh, And there's another reason why we haven't gone any further. Um, Clark mentions it right here. It's because we can't get any further without wisdom. Wisdom requires us to take who we are, who our spouse is. It requires us to take who we are in this time and in this culture. It requires us to take who we are in our giftings and our abilities and our shortcomings. It requires all those things to go, therefore, this is what this relationship looks like. Okay. Unfortunately, we used to have a very easy cadence in this that didn't have to be spoken because we had an unbroken chain of examples. Now we really struggle from that. Now we really lack in good examples of male, female, husband, wife, mother, and father. Like I've said before, if we're trying to get from Cork to Dublin, we agree with the bartender who says, if we have to go to Dublin, I wish we didn't have to start from here. Right? That's where we find ourselves. Um, But I promise you this, and I promise you this as a church that limps to do these things well in Capitol Hill. It doesn't take a lot to stand out. It doesn't take applying this perfectly to present the gospel beautifully. It's not hard to show what the world has forgotten and the goodness of God's design. Let's pray. Father, thank you for everyone's patience tonight in allowing me to go over time and overloading on all these things. I pray that you'd continue the work that we've begun tonight to, con- to make sure that we are not conformed to the image of this world, Lord. Either the traditionalism and the you know, 1950s misunderstandings of gender that the church has a tendency to take on, 
or the overreaction to them that has a tendency to eradicate these things entirely. Let us not be conformed, but be transformed by the renewing of our mind. I pray, Lord, that you'd continue to renew our mind and we would see this dual reflection, Lord, of uh, gender as it's meant to be and as God portrays himself and gender in our lives as played out in a reflection of who God is. Help us in this, in Jesus' name, amen.